Welcome back to the Indie Vets Happy Hour. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Heller, and I'm here with my co-host, as always, Dr. Dr. Marissa Brunetti. Marissa Brunetti. Not in the house. I was about to say in the house, but not in the house. Unfortunately, um, and you guys probably noticed that there was a little bit of a hiatus in our in our podcast series. COVID has uh, entered my home, and I've basically been in quarantine for the last month because I had visitors who came and then got diagnosed while they were here, and then they couldn't leave, and then I was stuck here in quarantine, even though, even though I didn't get it. And then just as they left, a couple of days after they left, I got it, and then... I was in quarantine, and then towards the end of my quarantine, my son got it. And so just it's just the never-ending cycle of COVID. So Marissa and I yeah, are— and, and did you expose me to COVID as well during that time? We won't talk about that, but you, you, were, you were quarantined. <laughs> and everyone is doing fine. Everybody's right? doing fine. That's, that's the good, good part. That's the good part. Anyway, so I'm good. almost out of it, but that's why I cannot be at Marissa's house as usual. Beer in hand, unfortunately. We're, we're going dry on this episode. <laughs> boo, this boo. is a sober, a sober Indie Vets happy hour, and and that's okay because it is the lunch hour, which is my second favorite hour of the day. Yes, and so we, we are recording virtually today about one of my least favorite things to see in veterinary medicine. Yeah, it's a very Andrew. serious topic, so maybe that's why we don't have beers today. It's a very serious topic. We're going to be doing our part four in our vaccine series, and this time we're going to be talking about feline injection site sarcomas. And there's a lot to discuss. We'll try to make it high level so it's not getting too in the weeds, but you know, we might nerd out a little bit here and there and talk about some specifics. And so who do you think this episode's intended for? I like to say everyone, again, and I think we don't talk about this disease process enough until we experience it or one of our clients experiences it. So I think that this is for every member of the veterinary hospital so they can be educated on how to talk to owners about this and also for cat owners who may never have heard of this disease, something that they should keep an eye on after their cats get vaccinated. That's great. All right, so let's give a little bit of a background here. So there was a time when we didn't used to vaccinate cats, especially for rabies. It was 1986, if I remember correctly, where in the United States, most local governments were, were mandating rabies vaccinations for cats. And we noticed soon after that, that cats started developing these sarcomas, these, these cancers that were aggressive, they were locally invasive mainly, but just really nasty things. And we started to put the pieces together and we discovered that it was likely associated with these vaccines. Since then, there have been other things that we've discovered as well, not just vaccines that are triggering these things, but a lot of injections, long-lasting steroid shots, even antibiotics. What's interesting, and you know, we'll go back to the 80s when, I mean, it's been a long evolution for domestic cats to actually be valued as, you know, a house pet um, that deserves vaccination and healthcare. And so I agree with you, it hasn't even been that long. We've recognized these sarcomas since about 1991. And when we were going through school, we were still calling them vaccine-associated sarcomas. So that's what people have heard of them. And you're right. They are largely caused by vaccines, but there are their injectable materials that have been implicated um, in these feline injection site sarcomas. But Andrew, can you talk a little bit about the actual sarcoma and, you know, how they've been recognized in the past and now? Yeah, I mean, sarcomas can happen, you know, spontaneously, obviously, just like any cancer. We don't always know exactly what causes it, but these particular sarcomas, and most of, most of these sarcomas are fibrosarcomas, 
and they typically are very aggressive in the area in which they spread. About 25% of the time, they can metastasize, and usually we'll see the metastasis in the lungs, but they can go to other parts of the body. We can talk about that a little bit later. And the unfortunate thing about these fibrosarcomas is they have these like tendrils where you know you might feel a lump, but the mass actually goes much deeper. What, what do they call them, like spindles? that go down yeah. into the, into other parts of the surrounding area. And it becomes really, really difficult to remove, to surgically remove. And so usually when you do, we'll talk about this again later on, but when you do have to surgically remove them, you have to take really, really big margins because of that. And you can't see these little tendrils, right, that the tumor shoves out. So you may be removing it and it could come back even more aggressively than before because you left those little tendrils that were spreading out everywhere. So these are notoriously nasty looking masses that do require pretty aggressive removal and we will talk about that. But why cats? Cats are very special. Cats are not small dogs. Homage to vet vet school. And you know, why do cats have this unique susceptibility to these injection site sarcomas? Or what is the hypothesis? Yeah, I mean, I think this is when we, you and I can nerd out a little bit on our research. <laughs> so what we found nerd. was, um, you know, <laughs> cats have, they have this increased susceptibility to oxidative stress. And there are a bunch of reasons for that. And these are things that were actually new to me. Maybe I learned this in vet school, maybe not, I can't remember. But cats actually have weak sulfohydryl groups on their hemoglobin. I'm so sorry. I just had a horrific flashback to organic chemistry and my second least favorite class. I was going to say sulfhydryl. I don't know if I've said that in the last 10 years. That no, was... I know, right? Sulfhydryl groups. Ugh. They also have non-sinusoidal spleens. This I do remember learning in, in vet school. And what this does, it reduces their ability to remove the Heinz bodies, which are those, if you remember, those denatured precipitated hemoglobins on the erythrocyte surface. They also have right. increased lipid peroxidation of the erythrocyte membrane. So for all you people that are not scientific, we're just talking about their red blood cells here. The erythrocytes are the red blood cells. And their red blood cells, the hemoglobin in their red blood cells, easily converts from tetramers to dimers. Again, I don't really know what that means, yeah. but <laughs> I, I can't nerd out completely here because I don't remember what a tetramer and a dimer is. Well, I think what what's really important, obviously, with these these nerdy things that we're talking about is like cats have different red blood cells than lots of animals. And so, and they can't recycle, right? What the spleen does, they can't remove these blood cells that have had stress to them. That's why they're more uh, susceptible to, to this stress and to inflammation. We've also heard many times that cats have limited concentration of enzymes to categorize some, you know, chemical reactions in their body that increases the risk of oxidative injury from the oxidative stress. So basically, we don't have to, <laughs> let's not go back in organic chemistry, but really what this is is telling us that one, cats have different red blood cells than other species. Two, this predisposes them to having more oxidative stress, which leads to oxidative injury and inflammation. So do you know what the incidence is in cats? I know that it's been a lot of retrospective studies to discover this, but do you know what the incidence is? 
It varies, which is tough. There are numbers out there that say maybe it's one per 10,000 cats, up to 10 per 10,000 cats. But like you said, it varies in different studies. It actually varies from country to country, which I will touch on a little bit in, in some of the summaries of studies that we've had, which are not a lot. But like you said, you know, since sarcomas take long to form, so you don't know actually when they started or what actually was the precipitating cause. Because of that, because of different vaccines that are used in different countries, because of different injections that are used in different countries, it's really hard to get strong data on this problem. And so I will conclude at the end by saying, wow, I wish we still knew more about this. It's a tough topic to research. <laughs> it is. It is. Because obviously we, you know, I'm going to get into this later, but we all have very strong feelings if we've seen cats with this disease and it scares us. And so we're looking for more information. We're looking for numbers to tell our clients. But usually what I will say is, you know, 10 per 10,000, one per 1,000, that it varies and that we have to do whatever we can to decrease the probability that it will happen. And so we'll talk about that a little later. So Marissa, what are the studies, at least in the last 10 years, that have looked at this issue? The tough part is that studies tend to be retrospective because sarcomas take so long to form. But, you know, there's three different types of studies that AAFP talks about. There's experimental studies. And the issue is there's not an accepted definition of inflammation in the context of tumor induction. And many cats get inflammation that doesn't lead to neoplasia. And so it's we need more sensitive biomarkers, you know, such as DNA damage that's specific to feline injection site sarcomas, so we can distinguish whether, you know, an adjuvanted vaccine is worse versus a non-adjuvanted vaccine. So there is this general conjecture that more vaccine-induced inflammation leads to increased sarcoma risk, but that's not specific. The adjuvants that are added cause more inflammation, which they suspected cause a higher incidence in this disease. Right. So that was the thinking. And so everyone went and they took adjuvants out of their vaccines. We talked about Purevax rabies and Purevax FELV. But, you know, in the past 10 years, there have been two studies that have contradicted each other. In 2012, Wilcock et al. found no decrease in the proportion of post-vaccinal sarcomas in feline skin and sub-Q masses submissions between 1992 and 2010. And that's significant because in the year 2000 in Canada, where the study was done, is when they introduced the non-adjuvanted vaccines. So, okay, no decrease. But then in 2018 in Switzerland, Graf et al. noted a marked decrease in relative frequency of injection site sarcomas since introducing the non-adjuvanted FELV vaccine. They they didn't study the rabies vaccine because they don't really, they don't give it in, in to Swiss cats. So those two studies, yeah, those two studies are contradictory. And also, this is what I hate about studies is these studies are only as good as the masses that were removed and submitted for histopath, right? So like all the people that don't pursue treatment because A, it's expensive or B, it's, you know, locally invasive and the cat's not doing well, we're missing all of those. So we kind of have to take that with a grain of salt. I guess that's also why we don't know if it's one in a thousand or one in 10,000 because it's just, exactly. right, just lack of data, unfortunately. Exactly. And then lastly, and this is the study that, you know, the AAFP is using to kind of recommend a broad, a broad saying about um, injection site sarcomas. But in 2012, 
This is the only study they performed a comparative analysis of vaccine types in common use in the past 10 years, and it does provide some evidence that the non-adjuvanted vaccines may be less likely to induce sarcomas. However, there's bias concerns and sample size issues always and and research stuff that I'm not going to delve into here. Although it provides evidence that supports the hypothesis that we all had, it, it's not enough to, you know, make it um, set in stone. Okay, so, so before we get into treatments of this, let's talk about some of the take-home messages that veterinarians should know, at the very least. I want to start with one, is don't vaccinate cats for things they don't have a high risk for, right? Because you're just causing an increased risk for this to happen, right? So if your cat's right. an indoor cat, they're the only cat in the household, there's no reason to give them the yearly FELD vaccine. Absolutely. Everything we've talked about in all of these vaccine podcasts has been you know your audience, basically. Obviously, there are core vaccines, but choose wisely for your non-core. So that is a great take-home message. Okay, so other other do's for injection site sarcomas. Do know that many types of injections have been associated with sarcomas, right? Especially long-acting injections. So we need to educate our client base wisely. Like you said, do only vaccinate cats for things that they are at risk for. Do, this is very important, do vaccinate in the distal limb of the cat as distal as you can go. Even in the tarsus and carpus, some people have been able to do that. If cats are, you know, very good, and they're, they're dosed up on gabapentin and feel away in the uh, fear-free mechanism of handling cats, then get as distal as you can. And this is for all vaccines. So left hind, right hind, right front. I think we talked about this in a previous podcast, but even in the tail is something yeah. that some cat veterinarians will, will do. And I think it's pretty well tolerated. There was a study that showed that it was just as tolerable as it was in the, in the distal yeah. limb, in the distal limb. And the tough part about the tail injections, which we've talked about, and this goes especially for injection site sarcomas, if you're going to inject in the tail, you have to inject like in the distal tail, like the like the medium to distal tail, because the proximal tail doesn't make sense because you need five centimeter margins if you're going to take something off. So to me, that makes it less likely that I'm going to vaccinate in the tail if I have to get really far down. Right. And what about, uh, there was a study also that showed that um, the antibody levels were just as high giving it in the distal tail as in a yep. limb. So don't think that, you know, there's not enough blood supply there, things like that. It, it does give them the, the protection they need. And a couple other things that um, I think were interesting that the AAFP task force mentioned was do not vaccinate in the interscapular space. I think we've all heard that before. Yeah. But I will reiterate, you know, we talked about distal limb. Do vaccinate in the distal limb. Don't vaccinate in the, in the interscapular space. Don't decrease your vaccine volume because you think it's going to decrease, you know, the the chance of a cat getting an injection site sarcoma. And don't give multiple vaccines in one spot in a cat. Yeah, that's important. We didn't talk about that. Thank you for mentioning that. All right. So let's right. let's talk about what happens, unfortunately, if you do come across one of these things. What what if you feel a lump or what if you tell your clients, like, watch for this and they come back and they say, I felt a lump. What should you use? If it's at an injection site, number one, that should clue you into this as a possibility. But there's a rule. There's a there's a really cool rule called the three two one rule or the one two three rule. And what this means is, if the mass is increasing in size one month after injection, there's where the one is. 
if the mass is larger than two centimeters in diameter, that's the two, and if the mass persists for more than three months, that's when you gotta do something about it. Tell us about how to biopsy one of these masses. Like if you if you follow the three, two, one rule, it meets these things and you know you have to take it off, what should you do to confirm the diagnosis? This is the counterintuitive part. You know, we're always, we're always taught if we see a discrete mass, if you can remove it all at once, take it off and biopsy. And if you have to go back, you know, you can go and get margins if you need to. In this particular case, the recommendation is to take just an incisional biopsy. So just a piece of it and send that off. The reason being that if you, if you take a normal margin, which is what, about two centimeters, not the five that's required for, for this type of, of tumor. If you do that, you're going to make it A, more aggressive if it is a sarcoma, and B, it'll be much more difficult, you know, to find your new margins at that point. <laughs> yes. So I thought, oh, geez, if I'm going to knock this pet out, I might as well, you know, take it. But that's a, such a good point. Take an incisional biopsy. Don't just do an FNA. That's not adequate. For, for people that are not doctors out there listening um, or, you know, not part of veterinary staff, an FNA is where you actually stick a needle in it and remove cells and look at them under the microscope. And so, you know, cytology of that is not adequate. It has to be an incisional biopsy for confirmation. Yeah, the FNA, from what I've been reading, usually just comes back as an inflammatory sample. Or like reactive fibroblasts. You know, say, oh, well, maybe we don't need to remove this just yet. So uh, yeah. incisional biopsy is what you want to do here. And then, of course, if it does come back as a confirmed case of sarcoma, that's when you got to go to staging. What do you do to stage? You know, <laughs> so ideally, right, in a perfect world where we could do everything, I would do everything. So all I would do blood work. I would do full blood work, obviously. I would do chest x-rays, three view, and abdominal ultrasound as well. If, if not that, and you want to go big or go home, you could do an MRI or CT of the whole body. You could catch anything in the lungs or in the abdomen. But usually, you know, strangely enough, as aggressive as these tumors are, like you said earlier, the metastatic rate is only about 25%. And like a lot of tumors, the lungs is, are the most common site for, for spread. So... If you if you had everything at your you know at your disposal, I would stage with everything, but sometimes that's not possible, and so I will at least do full blood work and chest X-rays, um, and if that's clear, you know you can decide if surgical planning makes sense and you actually are able to get margins. Well, that's the thing. So, is this something that general practitioners should be doing? I mean, I don't know. This it requires a five centimeter margin and two fascial planes. Right, two fascial planes. That means if it's let's just call it a three centimeter, four centimeter tumor plus five on each side of it, all around, you've got this enormous hole, and yeah. this is not going to be a little mass removal, right? That we're used to in general practice. This is something that is also going to involve an oncological follow up, radiation therapy chemo, things like that. So I would refer these. Yeah, I, I agree. I think if it's if it's in the distal limb and you can amputate the limb and you feel comfortable doing that, then I would do that. But otherwise, I, I agree. I think these should be referred for, because you really only get one shot to get all of this. And, you know, I was telling the story of my, my brother's cat, um, who unfortunately had to put to sleep earlier this year, because he did have a very large presumed fibrosarc from an injection site. And I took him to a surgeon, right? And his was actually in the proximal limb because he's he's an older cat. And so, you know, he had been vaccinated 
probably not in the distal limb his whole life. And um, the surgeon said she would have to do a hemipelvectomy and remove his whole limb and resect his caudal abdominal wall. So like cats aren't big. So prevention, quote, quote, AKA vaccinating in the distal limb or injecting in the distal limb is is probably the best thing we have, <laughs> you know, to, to take care of this. We used to just, because cats are so fractious, we would just go wherever we could. Right. And we're not thinking about the long-term effects that this could have. I mean, it's a one in 10,000 chance, right? Or even a one in 1,000 chance. So there's a low likelihood. But it's really important because we all see hundreds, if not thousands of cats per year. So if you see a thousand cats in a year, one of them might actually get this from you. So it's a real number. And if you see, and you, if you see 10,000 cats in a few years, you know, you're going to see this in your, career, in your early career. Yeah, and I think a really big take-home message, and we'll end with this because you know we're always talking about like client communication and education of your staff. And so I think it's really important. We always talk about possible vaccine reactions with dog and cat owners. But are we really talking about the possibility of these masses from injection sites? And I just want to remind everyone that this is a team effort here. You know, your text can talk about this. You can send something home after you vaccinate a cat that talks about monitoring the site for masses um, and when to call you back if there's an issue. So I think first off, we have to start early. Every male kitten, I'm talking about blocked cats with that, with that cat, right? So like every kitten, I will talk about injection site tumors and things like that. So starting them off early, even in their kitten kits, I think is really important. And then every time you vaccinate a cat or inject it, I think we should be empowering owners to feel them for those masses and be proactive in bringing them in early rather than letting it wait. Like I always say to people like, masses in cats are not as common as dogs. And when I find one or see one, that should be seen by a vet right away. So I think client communication and education is very important. Staff education is very important. And all this said and done, the AAFP with all the research or lack thereof, that has been done, it really has only led them to say, like, currently there's insufficient evidence to justify recommending a single vaccine type, even though most of us are using Purevax, right? So they're saying there isn't enough evidence. And so the things that we can do are make sure you're injecting in the proper location, make sure you're educating your clients, and make sure those clients are monitoring their pets for these tumors. And I think those are the biggest things that we can get across um, and hopefully there'll be some research that actually shows something that we can use. If you have the choice between the adjuvanted three-year rabies vaccine in a cat or a one-year Purevax. I'd always use the Purevax. Even if it was, even if you have to give it every every year. That's a great question, Andrew. And I guess now thinking about this, going through the evidence for this, if I could get the three-year adjuvanted one in the distal limb of a cat every three years, like in the tarsus, then I may do that. Yeah. So maybe this is, you know, reading what the task force said, I'm not just instantaneously grabbing for Purevax, even though it makes me feel better. <laughs> now, if you asked me, what if you had a three-year Purevax versus a three-year adjuvanted, which one would you use? I mean, then you'd probably go with the Purevax because there has been at least one study that showed improvement, but the other studies right. haven't necessarily, I mean, you might as well. It's not going to hurt. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. It's not going to hurt to use the Purevax. Yeah. I think this has been a great episode and there's definitely some key takeaways from this. Number one, communicating. I think you, you touched on that really well. Number two, the distal 
injection sites. Number three, injecting less frequently if possible, whenever possible. Yep. Anyway, I appreciate everybody for joining us today after this hiatus. We actually have an announcement to make. We are going to be changing the name of the Indie Vets Happy Hour. The reason we want to change our podcast name is because we know there's not a lot of vet podcasts out there, especially ones that deal strictly with general practice things that are for a, a large audience. But we realize that other than the vet in Indie Vets, it's really hard to search for our podcast. And so we want vets to be able to search like veterinary and for our podcast to come up because we really, we're hoping to <laughs> to record lots more episodes more frequently and at least get new episodes up every week moving forward. So part of that involves changing our name. So stay tuned. We are working on getting members of different vaccine manufacturers on the pod. However, we're also launching into something that we haven't titled yet, but something I'm always looking for in veterinary podcasts is like, I have 10 minutes until I get to work. Like, how do I diagnose hypothyroidism in dogs, right? Like, it sounds simple, but like, what's new out there and what should I be doing for real? And so we're going to start recording short 10-minute episodes, 10 minutes or less, about diagnosis and treatment of major common diseases that we see in vet med. So this will just be like a quick review that you can listen to on your way to work or when you're working out or something. We'll come up with a good name. All right. Well, that concludes the episode. This was actually our 20th episode ever. Thank you for joining Woo! us. Woo! Unfortunately, we're not even celebrating with beer, which is really sad. But uh, if you did enjoy it, please leave us a review and tell your friends to, to listen in as well. And Subscribe. And family members that have pets would love to listen to this kind of stuff. I think it's, it's really good information. We try to keep it on the level. Thank you again. Cheers. Awesome. Cheers. Thanks, Andrew. 